Well, good morning. It's really, good morning everyone. It's really lovely to see so much prayer going on. I hope someone was praying for me. Um, but it really is good to see. And thank you for the opportunity to come and open God's word with you. Um, I've been asked to share a very brief, small amount about myself, just so you know who I am, where I've come from, and what have you. Um, my name is Richard. I am currently the minister at Barton Baptist Church in Torquay, and Barton sends you their warm greetings. And I thank you for allowing me a day release, because you know that ministers don't get out very often when they're in, minister, in a post in another church. So it's really lovely to be here. Uh, I've been married to Rachel for 24 years, celebrate our 24th last week, and we have three children, uh, twen- Andrew's 21, he has produced us a granddaughter, uh, I'm still in shock about it, so if you are, I understand. Uh, my daughter is 20, and this evening I'm driving her to Heathrow, because she's going back to Canada, she's a missionary with YWAM, and my youngest lad is 16 and has just finished school, I survived the school years, well... Never again. <laughs> Never again. Never again. Uh, I, I've been at Barton for four years now. Before that, I was at college. I got my master's in theology at Bristol Baptist College. I love theology. This is a great letter in Revelation for me to do. Doctrine does matter. It's not boring. It's not irrelevant. Um, before that, I was a missionary myself with YWAM. I worked in biblical studies. I love to teach and open up the Bible. Um, and before that, I was in retail management for 10 years. Shall we open up God's Word together? It's on page, as you know, 124. Uh, 1234. 124, I think, is Genesis, isn't it? Uh, no, page 1234, Genesis. Uh, <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Let's hear what Jesus says to the church. To the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Amen to that. 
I really would like to thank you for this opportunity to open up something that is just so rich, so exquisite, this portion of the Bible. You've already been to Ephesus, and you've already been to Smyrna, and now we land in Pergamum. You've probably had maps before as well, so I don't have any today, but you know how to find out where Pergamum uh, is. It's the third of seven churches that Jesus is speaking to, and you know the pattern that Jesus very briefly uses. He says, I know this about you. I know, Jesus says, I know your works. And then Jesus goes on to commend every single church. And every church gets that commendation. And then five of the seven churches receive a rebuke. But I have this against you. Nothing other than the piercing insight of the Son of God himself. So Ephesus got the rebuke, Smyrna didn't. You've seen the full pattern there. And then Jesus turns his loving attention to Pergamum. And unlike our modern day good cop, bad cop routine, Jesus is not trying to hammer out a confession using any means necessary. He's not trying to grind the church down. But he's the only one qualified, the only one qualified to, to see truly and to speak truly and faithfully that he may commend without flattery. Have you ever commended someone and thought to yourself, the amount of flattery you're using, you need a little sick bucket by the side. But Jesus commends without flattery and he rebukes. Ever rebuked someone and they've been destroyed? Jesus rebukes without destruction. So we must never lose sight of this amazing feature. That every church, all seven of them in Revelation, uh, encompassing the whole people of God, as I know you've been taught, hear a message, a word from the risen and reigning Jesus that is introduced in the first chapter. And that's the bedrock. That's the bedrock for these letters, for the whole book of Revelation. We are not to be overwhelmed as we read Revelation, a book that has been so misinterpreted down the centuries, that as we go through the book, we're not to be dismayed at the rage of the dragon against the church. We're not to be dismayed at the the great prostitute that comes out in later chapters, or the seven bowls of wrath or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're not to be dismayed at all of these things because we've read chapter 1. Jesus has conquered and he reigns. And so that's the foundation for the whole book. And that's how we read the rest of it. I don't know if you've noticed, every church in these letters, they get a snippet of the revelation of Jesus that's mentioned in chapter 1. No one church gets the whole package, the whole vision. No one church is completely complete, although they are complete and are being completed in Christ. But every church gets a snippet of the picture uh, presented in chapter 1. And so we come to Pergamum, and it says, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you flick back to chapter 1, verse 16... Right at the end of that description of Jesus, 
In his right hand he held out the seven stars, and, in the, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Pergamum is a church that needs to understand the significance of that sword that comes out of the mouth of that reigning Christ. They need to see that the area that they are most weak in is the area that Christ will address directly, without flattery, without destruction. And how the word of God, the sword that comes out, affects everything in a believer's life. Because that's what Pergamum need. They want to know why and how doctrine matters in the first place. The interesting thing about Pergamum is that it had a massive library. Massive. Bigger than your minister's office. Library. Rivaling the library at Alexandria. These were powerful people who lived in Pergamum. And they loved words. It was a judicial center, rivaling Antioch and Ephesus. But the one thing they needed, according to Jesus, is God's word. Not a word that flattens faith, but a word that builds faith up. Not a word that blindly accepts culture where anything goes. But a word of God that critiques culture. Not a word that merely confesses Christ with the mouth. But a word that shows the world... What a person who confesses Christ is Lord actually looks like. Now, to their credit, most churches today would probably quite like to be like the Pergamum church. They were a strong and hardy bunch. They were even martyred for standing up for their faith in Christ. They were countercultural in that sense. The famous Antipas, he's the one singled out here by Jesus. He pegged it. My faithful witness, Jesus calls him, put to death in your city where Satan lives. The very place, Jesus says, where Satan lives. And so the church in this regard was like a nail. You know during persecution, the harder you hit a nail, the Roman emperors found this out to their great cost. The harder you hit a nail the deeper it goes. The harder you hit, the deeper it goes. So you can imagine the Pergamon pride. Look at us, they would say. Look at us. We live and we die where Satan lives. We live and die where Satan has his throne. Look at us. Well, Satan's throne is an interesting point, isn't it? The temple of Zeus was in Pergamum. It was huge. One of the wonders of the ancient world. Which is now, if you've been to the Berlin Museum, you'll, you'll see Satan's throne there. The foundation is still there in, in Pergamum. Emperor worship, as you know, was compulsory. If you didn't offer incense in your town to the Roman emperor, off with your head. You were in big trouble. One of the other gods of Pergamum, this health god who called himself a savior, Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine, he had a symbol, a staff with a snake wrapped around it. That became the emblem on every single coin. 
Even if you were Christian, you were carrying around the symbols of the false gods. You were buying and selling things with the images of the false gods. You were being forced to offer incense to the emperors. The Pergamum church lived where Satan dwelt all right. They were a hardy bunch. They stood up for Christ when it counted. Jesus commends them for that. That famous Bible word, but. But. Here's the thing. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. (laughs) I have a few things against you. There's no mysterious parables to misunderstand here. Unlike the poor old disciples, Jesus, we don't understand what you're talking about. So Jesus gives them private tutorials when the crowds have gone home. But here, I have a few things against you, Jesus says. That's as clear as day. It's as plain speaking as a Yorkshireman. Are any Yorkshiremen in today? Yorkshire ladies in? Any? Are Devonians famous for their plain speaking? Not really. I've had a few shakes of the head there. Not really. As plain speaking as a Yorkshireman. Calling a spade a spade. Jesus had called the spade in Pergamum a spade. I have a few things against you. The beloved people of this church, they couldn't even see the spade, even though they confessed Christ and were willing to die, physically die, for Christ. They were so caught up in one aspect of church life, so ensnared in one area of church life, that the gospel, that the doctrine of the gospel, the outworking of the gospel in a believer's life, was being so ignored that Jesus shines his torch onto the church and says, you are ignoring to the extent that there is gross idolatry and uh, immorality in your midst. And you can't even see it because you're too busy dying for me out there. Doctrine matters. And suddenly, Jesus is saying this. Idolatry and immorality, the two of the worst charges of biblical infidelity that one could imagine. It matters how we live our lives, doesn't it? It really does matter. And so the commendation now seems like a very small pinprick of light on a very black canvas of their church life. Jesus is the one who interprets the church, not us. Oh, we've got work to do, haven't we? We know. Some of us have been around for a very long time in church life. We read the scriptures faithfully. We look at church history to make sure that we're not going off into some heretical nonsense. We understand and stand on the shoulders of others. And this church itself has had some incredible ministers down the years. But Jesus is the one who interprets the church. We are defined by him. And as much as we read our Bibles and we uh, listen to the Spirit and we try and interpret these things in faithful ways, 
As much as we stand over Scripture like I'm doing now with these two Bibles here and you're doing with your Bibles on your lap, you're over Scripture, doing the interpreting. It is Jesus who walks among the stars, who holds the entire church in his hand, who stands over us and interprets us. I'd like you to be mindful the next time you open your Bible, when you're alone, when you're sitting down, don't expect yourself to interpret the Bible. Expect the Bible to interpret you. And there's a huge difference. A huge difference. Because that's what's really going on when we are open to the Word of God. And Jesus tells us in His pure love the truth we need. We don't need the words in the massive Pergamum library. We need the Word of God. We don't need the false medicine of this false god imposter Asclepius who calls himself a saviour. We need the medicine of the gospel. We don't need emperor worship. We need to know how to worship the Lamb. We don't need Zeus. We need Jesus. We don't need Balaam and the Nicolaitans. We need the Word and the Spirit. We need the good and the bad that we may be led to what Jesus says next. Repentance. So that we do not deceive ourselves with our grand notions, all our martyrdoms out there, all our great deeds and our big things for Jesus. Look what we do! I don't know whether Muttley comes into that category or not. I don't know. This is up to you to decide. But this is God's word to us. How is Jesus going to be allowed to interpret this beloved group of people at this time? When you're looking for a minister, how is Jesus going to be allowed to speak into that situation rather than you interpreting learning together what it means to allow and hear Jesus himself interpreting for you. So while we remain true to his great name out there, with our confessions and our protests, our letter writing, our church going, our martyrdoms, and these are all good in their right place, we can often fail to see how the name of Christ is maligned in, for example, not the grand gesture, not the depersonalized gesture, but the personalized one, the relational one, our relationships, how we don't love or do love our spouse, for example, the way we talk to others or about others. Sometimes, we need to be honest with ourselves, sometimes has all the hallmarks of Satan and not Jesus. Or the way subtle consumerism in our lives is not only not critiqued, but is, you know, ring-fenced from critique. We don't go there. <laughs> Jesus is not allowed in there to critique my consumerism because I've bought the idol. But when Jesus interprets us, when he interprets the church, it's for our good and for his glory. 
Because, and this is the beauty of it, God is absolutely relentless in purging idolatry. In smashing down those false altars that we've put up. He will be relentless in pursuing that in your lives, individually and as a church. Absolutely relentless. He will never hold back because, as he says, it is his truth that will set us free. What we do, we do what Pergamum did. And I've made this comparison. It is akin to someone claiming to like football. I asked earlier on, do we have any football fans in? And there was a few shakes of the head. I was very disappointed. Is there any football fans in now? There's one. Oh, come on. I know there's more. There's two. All right. Fine. Right. It's a, it, we do what Pergamon did. It's akin to a football fan supporting Torquay United. It's a contradiction in terms, surely. Do real football fans support Torquay United? Do real Christians do what the Pergamon Christians do? Immorality and idolatry? Do they do that? Do they allow the word in so that it can interpret their actions and invite them to repent? Does it? Or another comparison. It's like a fan with a season ticket to Anfield. Now we're talking football. (laughs) But he's so proud of this ticket. This would never be me. He's so proud of this ticket, his season ticket, he frames it and he puts it on the wall and he never goes to a game. But he loves Liverpool. He's got a season ticket. He confesses. But he does nothing with it. Insanity. A church that confesses Christ but ignores what it most truly needs the word of God, the sword from his mouth. A church that ignores that, my friends, is not a church. Something else, yes, but not a church. Because the gospel is what shapes gospel people. Biblical faith is biblically found. The triune God must be the center, the vision, the goal, the purpose. No monkeying around with banal vision statements. Because Jesus, from chapter 1, is the vision. And the gospel is where we don't move on from, but we stay in. We never move on from the gospel. We stay and we go down. We go deep. Roots, whatever it takes, we're rooted in the gospel or we're not rooted in anything at all. That's where we go to keep the vision. And this way the word is real and alive to us. Maybe our greatest danger in the Western church is to abstract the Christian life. I think it is. So we make it derelational. We make these banal vision statements, derelationalized uh, statements coming out of our ears that have no effect on our hearts. But we say the right thing. We confess Christ. And by doing so, the God of abstraction lives in the church. But Jesus says, I know, I see. 
And apart from our oh-so-clever ability to abstract the gospel into meaningless drivel, which we do, we tend to do too many times, the God of abstraction lives amongst us. I think our greatest danger in the Western church, if I may be so bold, is to mistake suburban niceties and abstract religious mediocrity and think that that is biblical faith. It isn't. It isn't. Too many of us have been duped, and I'm, I said earlier, and I'm putting myself in that category now, we have been duped too many times into thinking that the middle-class dream of suburban Britain is Christianity. It isn't. Like Pergamum, we've accepted God's name. We confess. We sing the right songs. We say the right things. We pray the right prayers. Too often. But we've smoothed out God's ways. Here's a test. Here's a test. Going to church is very easy in our day and age. Not to mention what it's like in Iraq, but here it's very easy. We, we decide whether we want to go. We have a consumer mentality. That's, that's our society and our culture. But biblical Christianity kicks in, not here, when you leave. The conversation's on the way home. What you say about someone, or what you say to someone, or what's stirring right now in your heart, what are you going to guard yourself against? What God of abstraction is going to rise up within you and say that actually that preacher this morning took it a little bit too seriously, didn't he? I think we've done the interpreting of our situations and our lives and our churches We've smoothed Jesus out of it. The false dream. Aspirations of plenty in a sea of niceness is a false god. It is an adulterous, seducing idol. It really is. And here's why, and this is the final point. Jesus, in his critique, takes us into the heart of the Exodus story. He takes us into the heart of the law of Moses. The heart of that great drama of rescue of God's people as they come out of Egypt. From Numbers 22 onwards, this is where this is referring to. By the way, the book of Revelation is saturated in Old Testament imagery. It goes back there again and again and again and again. And you see this, especially in the book of Genesis. It's probably why I kept saying it at the start. But in Numbers 22, in this story where Jesus says, you hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. What does Jesus mean by that? When the king of Moab, on the, a small country on the right-hand side of the Jordan River, heard news that the freed slaves of Egypt were coming towards him, he didn't know whether they were going to rampage or whether they were going to pass through. He didn't know the story. He didn't know that they were going to the land of promise. So he sent one of his servants... Balaam, to go and curse God's people. 
And the famous story is that four times Balaam tried to curse God's people. And four times God protected his people and turned the curse into blessing. Four times. God defending his people, his covenant, his rescued, his people that he has called by his name. He protected. The curses failed. So the king of Moab thought to himself, I know, I will get him still. I will send amongst God's people prostitutes to entice them. You can read about it, Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25. I will send prostitutes among them. It says people in the, in the, in the Bible, but let's be honest, it was to the men, wasn't it? He was sending prostitutes to the men. And the men were led away into sexual immorality and idolatry. And they ended up worshipping that vile monstrosity called Baal, a rival to Yahweh all the way through the Scriptures. 24,000 people died as a result of this. 24,000 people who missed what God had for their lives. Wiped out. A whole generation betraying God's purposes. They were part of of God's covenant community. They took his name, but they didn't care at all what that meant in their daily lives. Prostitutes among the people, oh, for sure, send them in. Baal, idolatry, sure, send it in. This is what Pergamon were doing. That's the charge that Jesus gives them. It's a bit like Jeremiah, 600 years after Moses. The religious leaders were making the same mistake. Jeremiah would say the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the temple and this land. Do you know what they used to tell Jeremiah? No harm will come to us. We have God's name. We have God's temple, and he won't destroy this. What they meant was this. We have God's name, so it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter how we live. And Pergamum are following this same tradition. Doctrine matters. So Jesus invites. Repentance is an invitational word. Repent. This is his word to us. It's one of the hallmarks of a Christian church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer (laughs) said this, in order to achieve the goal, and the goal here is gospel promise, and for us, in the context of this passage, it will be this enigmatic phrase at the end, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What's that? I will also give him a white stone, with a new name on it. Nobody knows what that means. It's a wonderful mystery and a wonderful promise. But Bonhoeffer says, in order to achieve the goal, we must repent. Only in repentance can we hope. But here's the beauty of it. I want want to leave you to work out what this means because I couldn't find out what it means. Only... The pronouns in this section are exquisite. Verse 16. Jesus says, repent therefore. Then he says this. If you don't repent, 
if you, church, don't repent, he says. I will come to you, church. And then he says this, and I will war against them. Jesus is protecting his church. And the war that he brings is against all idolatry and all immorality and everything that hinders biblical faith to build up. And the sword from his mouth is how he will do it. So by the time we get to the end of Revelation, by the time we get to Revelation 19, the church is called the Bride of Christ. She's being prepared for a wedding And then it says in verse 8 of chapter 19 that she is pure and spotless. She is clothed in fine linen. And then it tells us what the linen signifies. The linen signifies Pergamum's problem. The linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The linen is how we live. In other words, doctrine does matter. Faith in Jesus produces righteous deeds. Faith in Christ produces holy lives. Because he's the way in our lostness, isn't he? He's the truth in our lies. He is the life in our idolatrous and adulterous death. And church here in Mutley, he knows you and he sees you. He knows where you are right now. He knows and he sees. But I beg you, in this time, which is a very straining time for a church, allow the risen and ascended Christ to interpret your situation for you. Allow him to interpret your lives for you because he knows and he sees. Let his word set you free this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are so tender to us. You are so good. Even when, Lord, we are charged with the vilest of offences, you invite us to repent that you may wash us clean. Father, I pray that we would be a people who rely on that word that comes out of your mouth. Lord, that we would be a people and a church that allow you to interpret our lives and our churches, which is your body. And Father, whatever idolatrous monstrosity we need to personally deal with, Lord, I pray that sword, that double-edged sword of your mouth will strike it down to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.